Hello there and welcome into another edition of the Intersection Podcast with conversation highlights from the Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. On this Easter weekend edition of the Intersection, I wanted to include some timely content. You'll be hearing from Jeremiah Johnston of the Christian Thinkers Society and Preston Wood Baptist Church in Dallas, providing some comments on the certainty of the resurrection and why it's important. Also, financial expert Matt Bell of the Matt About Money website shares insight about how Christian parents can teach biblical principles regarding the topic of money. And on this edition of The Intersection, Mark Sowersby of Calvary Community Church in Dudley, Massachusetts, has seen God do wonderful things in his life in bringing healing and forgiveness out of abuse during his childhood and speaks to the power of the Holy Spirit working in his heart. Finally, Messianic Rabbi Jason Sobel of Fusion Global provides some insight into the meaning of the elements of the Passover pointing to Jesus, the Messiah. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Jeremiah Johnston is the president of the Christian Thinkers Society, pastor of apologetics and cultural engagement at Prestonwood Baptist Church in Dallas, and dean of spiritual development at Prestonwood Christian Academy. He has written a book called Body of Proof, The Seven Best Reasons to Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus and Why It Matters Today, with comments from a recent Meeting House conversation this is Jeremiah Johnston. Number one, Jesus' bodily resurrection is the only way we make sense of the suffering in our lives. Romans 8.18, Paul says that the sufferings of, that he endures in this world cannot be compared with the glory mm. that is to come. And the glory that is to come is the resurrection with Jesus. More than 24 times in the New Testament, a promise we are given with more frequency then any other promise in the New Testament is John 14, 19, because Jesus lives, we will live also. Number two, Jesus predicted, in fact, I always joke, the, the early church, if it could have had a hashtag, it definitely would have a hashtag called on the third day. By the way, <laughs> if you're listening right now and you don't know what a hashtag is, I totally can't help you with that. So <laughs> the hashtag is on the third day. Jesus takes Old Testament passages and he does something really cool. I say that he messianizes them. He applies them to his life, his ministry, his work. Jesus loved, and if you're following along in the word, Hosea 6, 2, and 3, after two days he will revive us on the third day. On the third day, that's verse 3, he will raise us up to live before him. Well, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. This is body of proof number two. In Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 31, Mark 10, 33 and 34, Jesus quotes Hosea 6, 2 and 3. He applies it to, my, to himself, and he says, I will rise again after three days. So he definitely knew what he was doing. It's very important for that. Number three, Bob, he, he also demonstrated resurrection power. Mark chapter 5, Jairus' daughter is risen from the dead. Jesus raises her from the dead. Luke chapter 7, the widow of Nain's son Jesus stops a funeral processional, and remember, that means the boy would have died that day. Incredible grieving, and Jesus says, no, the boy is not dead. He's sleeping. He raises him from the dead. Uh, John chapter 7, of course, Lazarus, he raises from the dead. So he demonstrated that he had power over resurrection. The cool, I love body proof point number four. It's not what any of his disciples 
would have guessed they, that the Messiah would have died by Roman crucifixion. They were all looking for a conquering Messiah. We see this not just in the world of the New Testament. We see this in the, the Essene community, the Dead Sea Scroll community. They were expecting a Messiah who would vanquish a, a corrupt priesthood, who would kill the Romans, indeed kill the Roman emperor, so a conquering Messiah. No one expected the Messiah to die by Roman crucifixion. In fact, the disciples had given up in Luke 24. What changed their mind? The resurrection, that Jesus was physically, bodily alive. So that's a huge point right there. Number five, there's no motivation, or excuse me, there, the, number five is the archaeological sources that we have today overwhelmingly support the gospel narrative of what we see. So, you know, did Jesus die by Roman crucifixion? Yes, it's the best established fact of the ancient world. More so, it's likely that the disciple, it's absolutely certain that the disciples found the tomb empty when we study burial traditions, and, and I get into that in the book. Number six, I love, this is my favorite point of the seven. You cannot explain the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, or the Jesus's brother James, apart from the resurrection of Jesus, because both of them began following Jesus. They're hostile. They don't want to believe in the resurrection. So it wasn't just that Jesus was appearing to his fan club. He was appearing to hostile people like his own family, James. And we know that James dies in AD 62, believing that his brother is the son of God. He's stoned to death. And we know that from Flavius Josephus. And then finally, number seven, it's the only convincing explanation, explanation to me of how you can explain that everywhere the Christian gospel goes, society is improved, freedom comes, mm -hmm. equality comes. You can't explain the change in the world apart from the resurrection. So those are my seven. I've actually done it faster than that, but since we had a <laughs> few more times, I wanted to actually explain it. Jeremiah Johnston here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to christianthinkers.com. You can also find out more about the church by going to prestonwood.org. This is the Intersection Podcast with comments from Matt Bell of the Matt About Money website and the managing editor of Sound Mind Investing. In a recent conversation, he provided encouragement and direction for parents in teaching their children about biblical financial principles, about which he relates in the book called Trusted preparing your kids for a lifetime of God-honoring money management. Here now from that conversation is Matt Bell. I'm so excited about this content because I'm, I'm really passionate about helping parents help their kids get off to a good start financially. So there's a lot that motivated this, but to try to kind of knit it out to a couple of key points. One is that that kids, you know, it isn't that if we don't teach our kids about money, they won't learn. They will learn, but the culture will be their mm. teacher. And the culture has a lot to say about money and material things, many of which are not really so helpful. Um, and, and to say that more positively, the other thing that really motivates me is there's so much potential here. Mm. You know, Bob, kids have an invaluable asset. They have time. And just like time is one of the key factors that multiplies money through compounding when you're investing money, the same principle can be used or apply to other aspects of money too. So think about generosity. Think about a young person who really develops a heart of compassion for some of the world's great needs, loves the Lord, wants to share a portion of the resources that, that she's blessed with, even as a young child. 
develops those habits and practices and that worldview early, you think about how God can multiply that over her lifetime in in tangible ways of investing in 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 Christ's purposes in in this world and in very tangible ways of meeting people's needs and and even having a some role in in altering people's eternities, but even how that child's heart will flow into relationships with everything that everybody that she's in relationship with. It's just, you know, the compounding that, that God can bring about through that is, is endless. You, you think about a young, a young person who develops just a healthy relationship with money. You know, they know who they are. They're not the brands they wear, the car they'll mm-hmm. eventually drive. They're a child of God, how that will impact their lifetime and their relationships. I'm just, I'm excited about the potential of getting kids from an early age, started in a really good, healthy, God-honoring direction with money. And Matt, you make a very good point. The world has its own ideals, philosophies with respect to money and the use thereof. And I would even venture to say that the world's idea of money has to do with, well, how much you can get and really being selfish from a monetary standpoint. The biblical worldview perspective on money is quite different, and I'd like for you just kind of as a foundational opportunity here to share with us what you see as some of the keystone principles with respect to a biblical worldview on money. It's very different than the culture's yes, worldview on money. You're absolutely yeah. right. So the, the world will teach us in any number of ways every single day that life is about us, our comfort, mm-hmm. our pleasure, our happiness. God's word teaches us that life is about God, our relationship with him, honoring him, glorifying him, being in relationship with him. The world, the, the consumer culture we live in, teaches us that that money and things are the sources of happiness. And money and things are not bad things, but they're not the ultimate source of our of our happiness or, or, or the meaning of our lives. That comes through relationships. And the world, the consumer culture, teaches us that that life is really a, a competition to have more. You know, you ask people how much they need. They always need a little bit more. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just kind of embedded in the culture that we live in. Whereas God's word says life is not a competition. It's about contribution, using the gifts and talents that God has given us for, for a greater purpose. And it's just a very different worldview. And so that's really where it starts. And if we can start to develop that heart, that that worldview in our kids, what a difference that'll make. Matt Bell here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to mattaboutmoney.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more about The Meeting House by going to meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. When you go to the homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center. That's where you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast and the Meeting House radio program. Also, you can find links to the Intersection, to the Media Center, as well as its Apple podcast feed. Plus, you can find a link to the Faith Radio YouTube channel where you can view video content from Meeting House guests. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. There's also The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. 
Content can also be found through the Faith Radio app at a variety of podcast platforms. Search for Faith Radio Podcast when you visit Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, TuneIn, and other podcast platforms. The intersection continues now with the pastor of Calvary Community Church in Dudley, Massachusetts. His name is Mark Sowersby. In a recent Meeting House conversation, he discussed the childhood abuse that he suffered and the freedom that he has found in Jesus Christ, a story that he relates in his book called Forgiving the Nightmare. From that conversation, here now is Mark Sowersby. At the age of seven years old, my mother would marry a man 20 years younger than her, and he would come into the home and he would abuse me in every way, shape, and form. Wherever your mind can go, that's what happened. He raped me, he stabbed me, he burnt me, uh, he lied to me, he manipulated me. I think that's called grooming uh, today. That's what it's called. Back then, I'm on the other side of 50, so back then we didn't really have terms for it, but he really controlled me and and took advantage of me. He stabbed me and, again, sold me to others. It was a very dark and ugly time, as you can imagine, in somebody's life. I was only a child, and these events were happening to me, and I didn't really have a place to, to understand it. Who would? Uh, you know, I'll never forget the night that the, the threshold crackled and the, the, that he stole my innocence, and he lied to me because that's what abusers do. And, and told me it's all my fault. He told me that no one will ever believe me, that if I ever share, they'll take me away, and I'll be in trouble. So those words and the abuse echoed through my life many years even after the abuse stopped. And that's why I wrote the book, Forgiving the Nightmare, to kind of share with people, even though I love Jesus, I still had this pain. I even had this insecurity and fear that I had to give to Christ, and it wasn't easy. But we do hmm. talk about those ugly days, but we talk about a good God who pulled me out of that miry clay and let the light of God shine upon me. I was seven years old. Mm. Uh, I was already had a bunch of traumas in our life. I did not know my birth father. I was born from an affair my mother and him had. And so I was already empty in that way. So at seven years old, I was kind of excited. I thought I was going to have a dad, if you would, or, or at least a big brother or somebody to be on my side. And it didn't turn out that way. So from seven to 14 years old, uh, this abuse took took part of, it was a part of my life almost daily. So yeah, at 14 years old, I fought back. I, I told a loved one, uh, I told my mother's brother, my uncle, and he believed me, and he stood up with me with his, uh, with his wisdom, his strength, and his love. So at 14, by fighting back and having somebody be on my side, the, the physical abuse had never came back, but the lies mm -hmm. and the pain lasted much longer than that. Tell me about how the healing process began and how you saw God's faithfulness at work as you began to heal from this set of circumstances? Well, one of the first casualties to any trauma is I think that steals our trust. It's not the only casualty, but it's the first one. We don't trust people. We don't yeah. trust things, people, groups, pastors. We don't trust anybody. And that's where I was. I, I was always waiting for the other foot to drop. So when I came to be a Christian, it's a beautiful story. We talk about that in our book, but I didn't trust anybody. And I just wanted to know God. I didn't want to know a doctrine. I didn't want to know a fellowship. I didn't want to know a church. I wanted to know God. And really, the story of forgiveness came from that. I didn't start this journey off saying, okay, I want to forgive those who wounded me, who stole my innocence. But seeking God, the outcome of seeking God, God led me to forgiveness. Now, there's a lot of ups and downs. I was the one that he left in 99 for more than once. I mm -hmm. I had one foot in and one foot out. You know, so there's a, it's a journey of learning to forgive. I gave up, but God called me back. So 
I, you know, I did not seek forgiveness. I sought God, but God brought me to forgiveness. And it's interesting. The name of the book is Forgiving the Nightmare. It's not escaping the nightmare, even though that took place, or healing from the nightmare. That's obviously a big part of your story, but it's forgiving the sure. nightmare. So how did you see forgiveness operate in and through your life? Well, the first thing I had to realize is what forgiveness is. You know, I was taught forgiveness was forgive and forget, you know, let it go. Don't bring it up. Let it. That's what, but that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness means, uh, you know, you that it, it's it's not forget. Forgiveness is not forgetting. How could I ever forget that somebody stole my innocence? Forgiveness is still allows me to have my boundaries. Forgiveness is not saying it's okay. So I once I learned what forgiveness was, I was able to trust the Lord to help me bring me into that forgiveness. See, I, I grew up believing that someday when it's all forgiven, I'll just have rainbows and butterflies. But that day never came. What happened was the Everest of my life was was this pain that casted its shadow over everything I did. It was the mountain, the rudder that I lived my life by. But trusting the Lord, uh, God's word, God's grace, God's hope, God's spirit became louder. It became brighter than the darkness. It became stronger than the enemy. It became more loving than the hate. Hmm. So even though sometimes those moments show up, I have my triggers, I have, you know, I'm in that process. But when those moments show up, I remember how big God is. Mark Sowers be here on the intersection. You can find out more by visiting the website forgivingthenightmare.com. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, recently in advance of the Jesus in the Passover special that aired on the Trinity Broadcasting Network on April 6th, Messianic Rabbi Jason Sobel of Fusion Global discussed the significance of the Passover and how it points to the coming of Messiah. Here now from that recent conversation is Jason Sobel. He comes in on the Sunday, which is no accident that he came in on that day, because uh, four days prior to the celebration of the Passover, at least four days prior, the Passover lamb had to be set aside, brought into the home, and inspected to make sure that it was without blemish and fit to be offered. And so Yeshua came in, Jesus came in at the exact time the Passover lambs would have begun to be set aside and selected, okay, because he is the ultimate Passover lamb. And then he goes into the temple and he overturns the money changers' tables, which is, again, no accident, very significant, because the, one of the main things at the Passover is that all the leaven had to be removed from the homes because Passover is known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread because we left the Egypt so quickly, our bread did not have time to rise, so we eat unleavened bread. And so leaven in the Bible becomes synonymous with sin. Beware of the leaven, the Pharisees, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump of dough. And so every child was responsible for helping their parents remove the leaven from the house. Well, the temple was his father's house, hmm. and he was helping to prepare his father's house for the Passover by removing the leaven, and then he goes ultimately on that Thursday and celebrates the Passover, and one of the main things you eat on the Passover is the matzah, the unleavened bread, and what's amazing about it 
is that the, the matzah is pierced, striped, bruised, broken. There's three pieces of matzah. It's wrapped in a white linen cloth, buried, brought back at the end. It's a powerful picture of the Messiah. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By his stripes, we're healed, buried in a white linen cloth, brought back at the end on the third day. It's just how everything in the Passover points to Jesus' work as the Passover lamb and as the Messiah and Redeemer. And so as Jesus met with his disciples gathering in that room in Jerusalem to share that last supper with his disciples, as he performed the Passover meal, he was actually teaching his disciples the significance. He was teaching essentially about himself. Absolutely, because every major event in the life of Jesus happens on a biblical holiday. He dies at the Passover lamb. He rose from the dead on a biblical holiday. And we're going to get into this on the show. He rises from the dead on the biblical holiday of first fruits, which begins on the second night of Passover, the second of the seven days of Passover. Because if you have a good first fruits, it's guarantee of the greater later harvest. That's why he's the first fruits from among the dead, the guarantee that we are going to rise as well. And so, and then he pours out a spirit on Pentecost, the same day that the, the Ten Commandments were given at Mount Sinai, the Word and Spirit come on the same day. So he's walking the disciples through the Passover, showing how the matzah, how the bitter herbs, the bitter herbs with Judas dipped in points to him, how the cups of the Passover point to his blood that was spilled on our behalf. There's such a deep meaning and symbolism there. Mm. And having participated in Seder meals in the past, I know that part of the, the Seder is that there is an empty chair, and that really speaks to the coming of the Messiah, correct? Yeah, absolutely. It's called the chair of Elijah, Elijah because it says Elijah will come and prepare the way for the Messiah. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, prepared for the way of the first coming. But there, it's either going to be Elijah and another prophet, or someone that comes in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way for a second coming. So it, you know, it all ties to the coming of the Messiah. And you know, at the Passover Seder, you have the matzah, but the other main thing you have is you have these four cups of grape juice or wine that you drink, and it was the third cup that Jesus read and said, "This raised and said, this is my body, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Jason Sobel here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to tbn.org front slash Passover. The Fusion Global website is fusionglobal.org. We are nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. And you can find out more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. When you arrive at that Meeting House homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center where you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast and the Meeting House program. Also, you can find links to the podcast, to the Media Center, as well as its Apple podcast feed. Plus, you can watch video of Meeting House guests through the Faith Radio YouTube channel. There is a link through that homepage. 
Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. There's also The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Or you can get there through the programming section at faithradio.org. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.